I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. My fellow Americans, it is with great concern, yet great resolve, that I come before you tonight to tell you we are faced with a new pandemic disease in our world. Much is known about this disease, but much is not. While our best scientists believe that at least 998 people out of a thousand will recover from the illness, it can be horrific and lethal for the other two, and it is highly transmissible. These two people include our parents and grandparents and our friends and family members with compromised immune systems due to various health-related factors. There is no perfect solution for a problem like this, and every move we make to fight the disease and protect people will entail trade-offs. We are considering various courses of action, but we hope and believe that the severest of these won't be necessary. But make no mistake, there is no scenario where people do not die. There simply is no way to protect everyone from this disease. It is already here. Our country, the American people, have seen our way through worse than this. And when those moments have arisen, we have met them in full while preserving our rights our freedoms, and our way of life. We refuse to let this moment be any different. At this time, we ask you to take extra care in your daily habits. Wash your hands, maintain some distance from others, and wear masks. Take extra precaution if you are more at risk or find yourself interacting with at-risk people. My administration is putting the full power of the federal government behind our governors as they direct their state's approach. We will be signing into law appropriations for emergency relief when and if it's deemed necessary. We are entering a period of caution in American life, but we will and we must persevere. This is not a time for unwarranted panic. It is a time for faith, resolve, and a sense of duty to our fellow Americans. We ask you to do your part in looking after the health of your communities. I wish you all good health, and may God bless America. These words, or some similar, would be what a serious, capable president could have said at the beginning of this crisis. And if one had, things may have turned out much different. Then again, in retrospect, Trump's March 11th address to the nation doesn't now seem nearly as bad as people made it out to be at the time, as of course they did. It's kind of their thing. Much of what was problematized at that point related to travel restrictions and whether or not it was racist to call it the China virus. People claim that Trump lied about acting early in response, but it's possible that banning travel from China and then from Europe was among the most effective decisions made as the virus's presence in the United States came primarily from China and Europe. 
While Trump's speech wasn't nearly as ridiculous as it was made to seem, it was nonetheless delivered in a completely lifeless tone, as if Trump was acting serious and resolved. His performance was pitiful. The mantra on everyone's lips soon became flattened the curve. The phrase refers to the portion of the population that the models said would become infected over a length of time. Flattening that curve, forcing the total infections to disperse over a longer period, was to make sure that the sick who needed care would be able to receive it. It was never expected to end the disease or even bring down the infections. It was only meant to spread them out over a longer time. We needed to be sure that hospitals weren't overrun, which would put doctors in the unenviable position of having to triage patients, literally deciding who should get care and possibly live and who must be refused care. While New York experienced some harrowing days, the system never broke. There have been questions about the standard of care, and these questions are legitimate. But even if you were convinced that New York's system did indeed break down, no other area suffered the way New York City did. While supplies of protective equipment became a problem, hospital capacity certainly did not. Well, at least not from coronavirus. Across the country, some states and localities suspended non-COVID medical care, including cancer screenings and quote-unquote elective surgeries for minor issues, but also for cancer treatments, kidney stones, hip replacements, many of these with life-changing consequences. How many people went weeks or months without knowing they had cancer? Is it even in our collective moral makeup to contend with that question? As those treatments provide hospitals with the money to keep functioning, taking away the ability to perform them, cause doctors to be furloughed, and hospitals are being sent toward bankruptcy. But flatten the curve has become something entirely different from what was claimed at the time. Flatten the curve means what I described earlier. It does not mean that the curve becomes suddenly flat and that's when we know we're done. Its only purpose is to preserve hospital functionality in service of treating COVID patients. Flattening the curve can be done through a series of different mitigation tactics. One of them is extra hand washing. Another would be to take any sign of illness very seriously. Another would be taking extreme caution around people in vulnerable populations. It's important to remember that not much of what was known about the disease in early March has changed. Its methods of transmission, its lethality, and the health conditions that make some people most vulnerable were all known then. We also knew that any effect on children was extremely rare. Then came the lockdowns, or shutdown, or shelter at home, or California's Orwellian safer at home order. Responsible governors would have asked their residents for their consent to take drastic measures, explained fully in the absence of fear. Untold millions of people have been forced without their consent to have their careers and livelihoods destroyed. People have lost their life's work. 
Children have been set back in their educations and families will lose their ability to pay for college. There have been devastating spikes in domestic violence and child abuse, a huge rise in calls to suicide hotlines, paranoia and depression, and alcohol is flying off the shelves. This price is being paid by the 998 out of a thousand people that have nothing to worry about were they to become ill. There is no way around this. A favor of that price should not be coerced. It should be requested as an act of unity and charity. It was not. The lockdown dates were extended again and again at the whim of those in charge. I live in Los Angeles, so please understand that while I realize states are different, I'm going to be filtering all of this through the experience here. We have been locked down for nine weeks now. Nine weeks. Lucky people don't have to worry about paying their rent and buying food, making their car payments or paying their mortgages, or worry about not even having a job when our leaders have decided that this experiment in human suffering is over. But that's not most people's story. Nine weeks of lives not advanced. Nine weeks of isolation, separation, and crippling fear. The price is being paid by the 998 of a thousand who will not die from coronavirus. Any loosening of restrictions has been dangled like a cat toy in front of our faces with the message that if we all just behave as we are told, we can go back to real life. But that too is untrue. Ridiculous, capricious, and contradictory orders were cast from on high and adults have been spoken to in undignified fashion by governors and mayors. There is no indication that it will stop anytime soon. We've spent weeks with beaches, parks, and trails closed, even though we know the virus is extraordinarily difficult to transmit outside without being in very close contact with someone. This doesn't make sense, not even a little bit. The beaches are now open for walking and entering the water, but not for sitting. It only makes sense upon realizing that our leaders are trying to project that they are keeping us safe when they are not and cannot. Some stores are deemed essential while countless businesses have been closed for no reason at all. Nothing about walk-in retail shopping is dangerous with even a modicum of care. There is a difference, of course, in what can theoretically happen and what will probably happen. You probably will not get COVID from touching a dress in a store. If you do, unless you're over 60 with comorbidities or have other serious preconditions, it won't matter much anyway. Regardless, how does this differ in any material way from grocery stores where touching things is an unavoidable part of the process? Of course, it doesn't. And wait, are they sterilizing the gas pumps after every use? Give me a break. Why should competent adults have to pretend these things aren't true? Why does a news media spend all its time pointing out the worst possible realities or simply conjuring them from nothing a la hydroxychloroquine? 
while ignoring the most sanguine and relevant information about the disease, information that we've had for months to prove that the realities are other than they are. Hysteria is a far more transmissible disease than SARS-CoV-2. Let's linger on hydroxychloroquine for a moment. From before the virus became widespread among vulnerable communities in the United States, doctors knew that hydroxychloroquine could be an effective tool in combating the disease. Media reporting the facts over time gives us the illusion that the facts have all just come to light that day. While plenty of very interesting information is developing over that time in real time, we're also convinced to feel like there has been a new discovery every time our media decides to explain what's going on to us. We would have been better served by having the projected infection fatality rate on the TV screen all the time, rather than the COVID-related or possibly COVID-related death count and the absolutely useless statistic of cases. The term cases simply describes the number of tests that turn out positive, of which those who possess antibodies are part. The case statistic is often used in the context of new cases, which doesn't mean new cases at all. It only means there was another positive test. This matters a great deal on projections, especially taking into account that a person could die upwards of 45 days after contracting the virus. It also plays an intentionally performed dirty trick on the public consciousness. It convinces us that the virus is still burning through our communities, even though it simply isn't. This is fear mongering and nothing more. This should be obvious to everyone. If the stories and statistics the media chooses to report are all and only the ones with the potential to scare people and none that calm anyone, what you are getting simply is not the news. It is propaganda. You might recall that some weeks back, the media went ballistic over a flimsy study of patients at the VA, older and with more complicating conditions that indicated more patients who were treated with hydroxychloroquine died in comparison to those who didn't. Even though doctors around the nation have been using hydroxychloroquine and still are, even to treat children, the media felt it was their responsibility to let everyone know it doesn't work even though it does. As a way to prove that Trump is dangerous and stupid when he was discussing it. The priority was not to find doctors who would attest to his efficacy. The priority was to diminish Trump. The media went so far as to claim that a man died from drinking fish tank cleaner because he's a Trump sycophant with no brain, you know, like the rest of them, and was doing whatever the president said. That, of course, proved untrue. And the man's wife is now under investigation for what is pretty clearly murder. This is not a conspiracy theory. It is widely reported in sources that everyone will find reputable. People claimed that anyone supporting the use of hydroxychloroquine was bad and dangerous, even though it's been saving lives for the duration, and that they believed it was a cure. That was simply never the claim. It helps diminish COVID symptoms, period. This is the same mental error afflicting people whose minds change the purpose of flatten the curve to weaken and death. 
The press tried the same a few weeks later, claiming that Trump had encouraged people to drink bleach or inject bleach or other disinfectants into their bodies. He did not. Trump is a loose and clumsy talker, but it's pretty clear in context that he was referring to injectable UV treatments. If you don't believe me, look up UV light therapy and then watch the video from that press conference again. While he was clumsy and unwise to say what he said in that environment, there is nothing about his tactless behavior that makes it true that he told people to drink bleach. He did not. UV light therapy was being studied as a treatment for coronavirus at the time he made the statement. What exactly is the problem other than a media ready to twist things and a public too gullible and too lazy to bother thinking for itself? But it makes for such good late night television, even though it doesn't. In the following days, reporters who are bad at their jobs convinced people who are bad at thinking that there had been a resulting spike in incidents of poisoning from household products and that it was a result of Trump's muddled comments. That, of course, was not true. There was a rise in accidental poisoning, but it started before Trump's comments and was due to the omnipresence of household products in the homes of the horrified as they tried to soften the sharp corners of life by sanitizing the entire world. That the media does this so often with such poor outcomes is unsurprising at this point. They've gotten almost everything wrong for five years now. Their method is as transparent as it is dishonest. Their move is to say that whatever Trump does and says is wrong by virtue of him saying it. And the next day's breathless news cycle is devoted to backfilling why the administration is wrong even when it isn't. Naturally, Fox News is the same, but in reverse. They're as loath to say Trump has done something wrong as the rest of the media is to admit he did something right. Returning to the lockdowns, there is scant evidence that they were productive at all. The common sense view is that things would have been so much worse otherwise, but there's absolutely no proof of that. There's been plenty of work on the subject, but if you need to understand quickly why that's true, just compare charts of the spikes in death to the time of the lockdowns while realizing that most COVID death occurs between 25 and 40 days after exposure to the virus, with 14 days being the minimum and 50 plus being the maximum. That means that many of the COVID deaths until very recently, theoretically, would indicate an infection prior to lockdowns. While it's possible that lockdowns reduced the spread marginally, it does not square with what we've seen in places like New York, where the virus is now being primarily contracted at home by people who are locked down. Conversely, it's indisputable that the lockdowns have destroyed lives and caused deaths. And what started the lockdowns? A model from Imperial College London by Neil Ferguson projected 500,000 deaths in the UK and 2.2 million deaths in the US without mitigation. Even the raw math on that is silly, but measures of mitigation were already being enacted by the people days and weeks before the official lockdowns commenced. Neil Ferguson has been one of the world's top experts for decades. 
In 2001, his work on foot and mouth disease was responsible for the culling of 11 million sheep and cattle, and his upper limit estimate of human deaths was 149,800 higher than the actual toll of approximately 200. By my calculations, that's off by a gazillion percent. A year later, his model estimated a potential for 50,000 deaths from mad cow disease. Mad cow disease took 177. His model estimated 150 million deaths, potentially from bird flu. The actual number was 282. Likewise, swine flu was estimated to kill up to 60,000 people in the UK. It killed 457. Now, it's fair to say that maybe he's good at his job and the media chose to focus on the high-end figures to capture attention. I'm wide open to that view, of course, but even that view does nothing to support the man's reputation. At some point, it must matter whether or not the man is good at his job. His role is to advise. He advised to lock down. He has given horrendous advice historically and has given horrendous advice now. Yet we still consider him an expert. One might ask, at what? He has admitted that the data was processed via a 13-year-old computer model that was constructed for influenza. Two weeks ago, it was reported that Ferguson has maintained his sexual relationship with a married woman throughout the duration of this epidemic. I don't say this to slander him with gossip, as I don't care in the least about people's private lives. The issue here is the difference between what he knows privately and what he says publicly, not only in interviews, but through actions. If you tell the public to lock down and you don't do so yourself, that is a clear indication of how you actually assess risk. It's irrelevant that he had COVID antibodies. The fact that someone would set conditions for the hoi polloi while not caring to abide those conditions themselves is a mark of elitism and utter disrespect for the citizens one's meant to be protecting. That aside, I was sanguine but suspicious about the lockdowns on day one. I naively believed that the safer at home orders were in service of the stated goal of flattening the curve to preserve our capacity to care for the sick. It has become clear the orders were never for that purpose and that the politicians in our deep blue state have no desire to do anything that allows them to be perceived as culpable. I truly didn't believe it was even possible to keep people at home for more than a couple weeks due to the incalculable downside costs. Apparently those don't matter. In hindsight, they made no sense even then. The CDC's own guidelines state that lockdowns become largely ineffective if more than 1% of a population is infected before the lockdowns. Those guidelines were ignored in the first place, yet people continue to believe that lockdown was justified. There is more than ample reason to believe that well more than 1% had contracted the virus prior to lockdown. There is more than ample evidence that the first COVID cases in the States were late last fall and enough secondary evidence to believe it may have been present since early November. That would mean that we spent three and a half to four and a half months with the virus present and no mitigation whatsoever. The people who died from COVID during that time 
before the virus had a name in the States were marked as deaths from the flu. You don't have to take my word for it. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said as much in April when he directed coroners to review flu deaths through December after finding out the original American COVID death was 25 days before the CDC believed it to be. It's hard to believe he'd go to that extra step without good reason. Sadly, they haven't updated the public on this, to my knowledge, or to Google's. When I heard Newsom announce the coroner's review, my suspicion turned to anger. At this point, none of the rationalizations for these measures remain viable. Hospitals and emergency rooms are well below capacity. The timing was off by at least weeks, if not more. And yet, we remain stuck in our houses. Beaches, where it's nearly impossible to run into a diabetic 80-year-old in the first place, opened on May 13th. Of course, sunbathing and sitting are out of the question. Los Angeles has been covered indoors and out with ridiculous hash marks indicating where people are allowed to stand in relation to others. Los Angeles' supply of vapid, unhappy people now has something to castigate its neighbors for, and we're all worse for it. The only thing worse than a police state is a police state where bored, distrustful citizens believe themselves to be part of the police. This can have extremely dangerous consequences, as we just witnessed in the tragic shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. In late April, as the situation developed, I said that Newsom and Garcetti would slow play us back into opening giving hard-to-reach goals, and then convincing us that through our compliance, hard work, and diligence, we would beat all expectations and open more quickly. That is exactly what is happening. Last week, Newsom announced guidelines like a 14-day period with no COVID deaths and having to wait for 0.5% positive testing before moving to the next phase. Seven days later, those goals were completely eradicated and have been replaced with similarly silly goals and the announcement that we were weeks away from professional sports coming back. States around the country are returning to life as normal. We're being treated to authoritarian abuse so that their blatantly confused decision making isn't exposed. The date of the first COVID case in America does matter both in terms of effectively understanding the disease and in how the disease is perceived in the public psyche. The understanding that we've already lived for months with the virus in our midst should be comforting when considering society's reopening. This is among many questions that could have easily been hotly pursued by media if only we had one. Why, in all the hours of Anthony Fauci's face projected across the nation's televisions, did no reporter have the wherewithal to ask Fauci if he doubted the infection fatality rate was, quote, considerably less than 1%, as he estimated in his March 26th paper in the New England Journal of Medicine? But here are some more questions no one bothered asking. Why did you say it was acceptable to hook up with your Tinder date, a stranger. But you also thought handshakes should be gone forever. Is contact tracing difficult in that situation? It's a mystery. 
Why did you say on television in January that the U.S. had nothing to worry about and then repeat that sentiment in February once again on television? At what point did you consider coronavirus to be a real threat? And why weren't you on TV talking about that? Why did you encourage a nationwide lockdown? Also on television, something well outside your scope of expertise, not to mention your job. The lockdown was, like the shelter at home orders, premised on maintaining hospital capacity until it wasn't. Fauci changed course and his actions have convinced the nation that lockdown couldn't end until there were no more coronavirus infections in the country. He publicly made it impossible for President Trump to do his job. No matter how you feel about Trump, Anthony Fauci, though he has been an administrative politician for decades, aside from being a doctor, was not elected by anyone to govern the country. In Trump's position, I would have fired him immediately if it were possible. Fauci and the media have pushed America into hysteria and paranoia. And for what? I recently asked Lyman Stone, a prominent statistician and economist, whether or not nationwide lockdowns had ever been tried. And if they haven't, is their effectiveness purely theoretical? His answer was, quote, basically, yes. So Anthony Fauci on CNN went above the heads of the president and the 50 state governors to encourage a treatment that had never been tried before with no mind paid to the risks. The media immediately disregarded the administration figures who would speak to the economic danger. Imagine if Fauci was your personal doctor and wanted to try an extreme invasive treatment on you for a sprained ankle, forced you to accept that it was the only answer, and then didn't even explain what could happen if things didn't go so well. Hey, so we had to amputate, but in my defense, that sprain could have gotten really nasty if you played basketball tomorrow. I assumed in my model that you were going to play even though your ankle is sprained. Have we all lost our goddamn minds? Now, I'm fine to accept that Fauci may believe he's working in the nation's best interest, even while what he has caused could end up being one of the single biggest errors in human history. But his goodwill isn't sufficient. Fauci's role as a doctor is, by nature, risk-averse. First, do no harm and whatnot. That's not the president's role. Presidents are tasked with the well-being of the nation. That means they have to consider trade-offs. Fauci and the media made that impossible. I'll accept that it wasn't Fauci's intent. I won't accept that he's not savvy enough to have known better. Regarding trade-offs, how have we as a nation been so infantilized, so softened in the brain that we believe there's a world without trade-offs? On what planet do we believe that stopping a single variety of a low-risk death is our only priority? How did we convince ourselves that we could bring society to a screeching halt and suspend it indefinitely on false grounds, thinking that everything would work out? And what came next? The nation's media-obsessed hive mind decided that any call to loosen restrictions or open fully was an immoral siren to beckon the killing of grandmas. 
These people did not consider trade-offs either. In their callous, vacant, thoroughly blinkered view, severely diminishing the futures of 90 plus percent of the country and potentially breaking supply chains that could result in the greatest loss of prosperity in history was unquestionably worth it. That is an utter lack of morality, untethered to even what it means to be human. As an atheist, I have no problem admitting that one of the benefits of religion is how it gives people a picture of life that's largely inaccessible from the technocratic abyss we find ourselves in. My problem with religion is also about trade-offs. It's that the same picture is attainable without religion. At some point, we must contend with this material obsession. By material, I don't simply mean the acquisition of high-priced items to fill our voids. I mean the same unconscious realization that many atheists have consciously. You can't expect anything, so you're going to have to figure it out on your own. This is not easy. It wasn't easy for me, but it's nonetheless necessary. In a rich, comfortable, secular society, many people have a hard time finding a purpose. They turn to various vices or relentlessly hector people over minutia to feel like they're fighting for something important. These options provide no meaning. We're about to witness what that looks like in perpetual form as the bored and empty monitor our every move for violations of pandemic etiquette. This will do nothing but further divide people as we are seeing. A vast number of Americans have become rootless. In Los Angeles, our useless tool of a mayor, Eric Garcetti, has been relaying messages to the public like he's a powerful overlord. The county's public health director, Dr. Barbara Ferrer, a PhD in a field called social welfare that somehow gives PhDs, is extending some version of lockdown indefinitely. She makes $600,000 a year to make these awful decisions. California's leaders think the people will naturally react with obedience. Sadly, if there are three places in the country, that's true. One of them is here. Garcetti has now sent down the diktat that we are all to wear masks whenever we leave the house, including outside. Ferrer believes they should be worn while exercising. Masks have become the issue of the day. It's a shame that no one in our media has bothered inquiring deeply about what Fauci really believes about wearing masks and gloves. Most people have a well enough functioning brain to realize how ridiculous it is to wear gloves. Very few question that it might be just slightly less pointless to wear masks. If you believe masks are necessary, I will say, maybe you're right. And then point you to Fauci, the Surgeon General, most every doctor, and all of the others who have said that masks aren't necessary if you're not in the medical community. If they make people feel safer, good for them. If they don't want to get COVID from an unmasked person who almost definitely doesn't have it, they are free to stay home. Otherwise, it's their responsibility to look out for their own health. I'm not trying to be macho, as the bloggers say, imagining that being anti-mask is a male phenomenon and an example of so-called toxic masculinity. I don't know how they account for all the women who feel the same, but it's much deeper than all that in ways people seem not to appreciate. It's become one of those too clever by half ideas that become mimetic on social media 
that if you want lockdowns to end, you should embrace the mask. That's missing the point. Many of us don't believe any of this should have been done for disease that's not deadly to 998 out of a thousand people. We shouldn't have been shut down and shouldn't now have to follow rules that are capricious and contradictory. We don't want any part of what is clearly a panicked, hysterical public response. We also don't want any part of pretending that this is the right response. The damage we've done doesn't get reversed by pretending everyone is a disease vector while trying to force free, healthy people to stay in their homes. Thinking that others are disease vectors is ironically for team lockdown, how racism begins. The sadness of death due to disease isn't being disrespected by saying that the other 998 out of a thousand shouldn't have their lives ruined. The mask isn't the only aspect of this issue. It's what the mask represents. Plastic barriers between booths in a restaurant, no sports, no bars, kids can't go to school, no concerts. The problem is that we are sacrificing our way of life for virtually no benefit to satisfy the fear we've inculcated. What restaurant will survive on half capacity or less? How will the staff formerly in their employ make ends meet with half the income? How many of them will even come back to work while receiving unemployment plus $600 a week? How do they pay their rent or stay in their homes? How do they feed their kids? Are they expected to remain on unemployment forever? And if not, why are we incentivizing them to do so? For that matter, how do we expect to pay for it? We Californians often brag that our state is the world's fifth largest economy. Yet we're now asking the federal government for a bailout. In fact, a full trillion dollars out of the $3 trillion relief package proposed by Democrats is destined for largely... Democratic-run states and localities to fill their budget gaps. One would wonder where our tax money went, especially while our state is turning into a third-world destination where we have the rich and the poor and little else. One might consider where all of that money went when we have tens of thousands of homeless living in tent cities under our freeways and our K-12 through public schools ranked 37th in the nation. California is deep, deep blue. Aren't Democrats supposed to be the party looking after the poor, looking after education? We throw millions or billions of taxpayer dollars at non-existent bullet trains and non-existent housing projects. Graft scrapes off vast sums paid out to consultants and friends and nothing gets done. And our representatives are portrayed as less corrupt than Donald Trump. While Dianne Feinstein faces down an investigation into her stock sales, and Nancy Pelosi loads up an ostensible relief bill with political agenda items while articles have been written about the exodus of her hometown, San Francisco. If you are comfortable with these people directing what you are and are not allowed to do in your life, you are unfit to lead anyone ever, and I hope that you do not have the opportunity. No one should have that sort of ascension to authority. It is beneath human dignity to do what you are told without thinking about it, just because someone claims that they are following the science. They are not. This isn't about not wearing masks, which I have been doing. 
It's about standing against the notion that we have to accept any of these orders to do that. We'd have to expect that our leaders are fully informed, fully responsible, fully committed to doing what's best for the people they represent and morally competent to make these decisions. There is absolutely no reason to believe that they are competent leaders could have been straight about the risks and asked people to do what's best for everyone. Instead, without warning, we were prevented from doing most of the things that make up our days, make up our lives. Walmart is open. Small retail shops are not. We're told to wear masks outside to protect people's grandmothers. But if I haven't been within three feet of an 80-year-old in 10 years, I'm expected to relinquish my ability to work on the off chance that I might transmit coronavirus to someone who might transfer it to someone else who might then walk into a nursing home. This isn't six degrees of coronavirus. People in direct contact with the vulnerable can take the added precautions and should. The rest of us should not be compelled to. In the absence of the virus, it's actually more beneficial that the disease works its way through less vulnerable populations. You can disagree with herd immunity as a policy, but you cannot disagree that it might be necessary. Masks do not exist in a vacuum. Compliance with masks means compliance with having plexiglass shields between restaurant tables. It means chalk outlines on asphalt in schoolyards, showing children where they're allowed to play, as if drawn by police around a corpse. What sort of society are we trying to build? It's facile to say, one where people live. There is no proof that any of what we've done has had any positive effect, much less been worth the trade-offs. While countries have tried myriad variations of restriction, they've all had similar curves. I'm not denying that these variations matter, but more than the variations, particular hotspots matter. New York City was a massive one. It seeded potentially 65% of the country's COVID cases. Most countries' hotspots developed along a similar timeline, one that maps exactly onto what would happen if, let's say, 3 billion trips were taken as people around the world traveled to China for its New Year's celebration ending in mid-February. The Bloomberg headline read, World's Biggest Migration. 3 billion trips. Is it hard to believe people left China spreading coronavirus to the passengers on their planes and trains who then spread it to the rest of the world? We now know that coronavirus was in Washington state in December of last year. Between then and the middle of March, three months, no one expressed real concern about the virus. Then a spike happened. Are we to pretend that it was spreading at the rapid, horrifying speed at which we're told it spreads for three months, but didn't leave a mark? Which instance maps better onto human behavior? that any amount of disease is a threat, even though it wasn't for three months, or that there was a particular event at the root of this. To be clear, this does not imply any fault to the Chinese people. People traveling to China to celebrate the new year and unknowingly carrying a disease back to where they live is not an object of moral blame. This information is only relevant and actionable insofar as it helps paint a picture of what happened. 
I'm not saying this is even correct. I'm simply saying that to imagine the spiked growth in cases is due to a repeatable pattern of exponential spread is questionable at best. It might be possible that society got one outlier massive dose of the disease and the more accurate model for the disease's behavior is the three plus months we lived with it in our midst without panic. Likewise, people have suggested that it's a conspiracy theory to posit the virus leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as Senator Tom Cotton suggested in January. People conflated the belief that the virus leaked from a lab in China to the Chinese intentionally creating the virus and spreading it to the world. Those aren't even close to the same. The origin of the virus matters for multiple reasons. If it was leaked from a lab where it was being studied, questions must be answered about the security of the lab which was already known to be an issue. The worthiness of capturing new virus samples in the wild for the purpose of study. And what China's true role in deceiving the world amounts to. If it came from a lab, then we can assume with confidence that they knew quite a bit about the virus since day one. Information that could potentially have saved lives. This has massive implications on the future of trade with China and lays the groundwork for far worse. Hopefully it will not come to that, but to scream conspiracy theory at a claim that while it may not prove true is nonetheless not a conspiracy theory and one that's absolutely worth getting to the bottom of is to willfully blind ourselves to the real threats in the world and to leave ourselves more open to a repeat of the situation. These things have to matter. Unless you're one of those debased masochists who thinks America deserves this, you should be more concerned about protecting the health of your nation than making sure another nation isn't offended. Throughout this period, nothing has been more pronounced than the depths to which the fourth estate seems eager to reach. If the corporate media is somehow not nearing its end, if the corporate media is somehow not yet nearing its end, it should be the one critical purpose of the institution is to tell us things that we cannot find out for ourselves. It no longer does this for anyone who cares to look. We don't need blogs about Trump press conferences when we can just watch them ourselves. CNN and MSNBC stopped airing Trump's daily appearances as a feint towards solemn journalistic responsibility as they claim Trump was holding rallies by doing his job and answering questions on a daily basis in front of the American press. I don't recall them complaining about Andrew Cuomo's press conferences. They would air them live as if the result of New York's poor management was a national issue. They would provide commentary about how Cuomo was exactly the leader we needed, ignorant to the reality that no one handled this crisis worse than Cuomo and New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. And everyone can see it. Cuomo kept schools and subways open to flex his superiority over de Blasio and flaunted it on Twitter. At night, he would be interviewed by his brother. He was never asked why he was putting patients sick with COVID into nursing homes. The subways went two months before a cleaning schedule began. De Blasio vacillated between a herd immunity strategy and insulting Jews who went outside on Twitter. None of this earned either man the scorn earned by the Florida governor for allowing adults to walk on the beach, which was dangerous because the New York bloggers of the Daily Beast were scared. 
So everyone should be. Florida has now dodged the dumb rednecks on the beach problem twice while New York millennials pack themselves into parks. Well, parks in white neighborhoods. De Blasio had police enforcement at parks in black neighborhoods. There's plenty of photographic evidence if you think I'm embellishing. I'm not. There is no need to depend on Fox News or CNN or Breitbart or the New York Times. Getting at least a workable picture of what's happening in the country is far easier by properly curating a Twitter feed of the most thoughtful people studying the areas that are important for you. There's a real person there who wants to explain things they're obsessed with. Would you rather talk to an epidemiologist than hear Don Lemon tell you what science says? You can do that with the thing in your pocket. You can just ask these people, really. You don't need Rachel Maddow to tell you what Trump said in his press conference while showing clips of what she finds audacious. Watching the press conferences presents an entirely different view of the proceedings than what the news will tell you. If you want to know why CNN and MSNBC stop showing the press conferences, you only need to realize how dishonest their reporting looks in comparison to what you just watched yourself. They realize the danger of presenting the two points of view in succession. The only intelligent conclusion they've come to since 2008 is how dangerous it is to have their narrative blown apart by reality as it evolves. You can't tell me what Trump said if I can see what Trump says. You can't tell me he's lying about this or that if I'm seeing better information on my own than CNN is even getting. You can't tell me what a study says if I've read the study. Let's return briefly to theory. Do not believe that which relies upon that which can't be proven. We are in the midst of the country's third major flare-up over hydroxychloroquine, which Trump now says he's using as a prophylactic. It may be true that the FDA doesn't recommend the drug as treatment for COVID, though off-label use isn't unheard of. Nonetheless, doctors around the country and around the world are using it combined with zinc to treat symptoms. They believe it's reducing hospital stays and saving lives. Patients who've been treated with it credit it to saving their lives. There have been numerous studies attesting to its efficacy. On the other hand, there is the undying motivation to paint Trump as dumb and dangerous. So the media has made hydroxychloroquine a major issue. We've also had one total study saying that in veterans in the VA over 65 years of age and with comorbidity who were treated with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, not zinc, were already in worse shape, necessitating the drug treatment. But no matter. This isn't the sort of study that a person who cares about getting to the truth would rely on. It's just a piece of information among other information. You can't say science says, and then make the science do whatever you want. That's Simon says. If a single flimsy study and the FDA says are the two bases for your argument, you're going to have an awfully difficult time defending your position. The only conclusive retort you have to clinch your case comes if people start dying specifically from hydroxychloroquine. There is no reason to believe that will happen. 
And doesn't it feel a bit strange to be rooting for it? But you want to make sure Trump's flippancy doesn't murder anyone, I understand. I can tell you with absolute certainty, it won't kill the people who died before trying it. I feel like I'm on solid ground there. The proof of its efficacy is only anecdotal, though, you say. Perhaps, though it has been used and studied for 70 years. Not against COVID, you snap back, your anxiety growing. Got me there, I say. Let's accept that the proof of its efficacy treating COVID is totally anecdotal. Except for the studies of which they're more supporting it than opposing. Those anecdotes are told by doctors who are actually treating patients and by patients who are still alive to talk about it. What are we to imagine studies are, if not the collection and assessment of anecdotal information? These doctors are not all Trump fans. They're not all even in America. Soon, we will have more information. For now, protesting the use of a drug that is saving people Based on one bad study and a searing hatred for the orange man in the big suit is not only insane, it's cruel. Nancy Pelosi has wowed her audience of clenched jaw nags by calling the president fat and saying she was worried about his consumption of hydroxychloroquine as an obese person. One might wonder if scaring obese people off from using a potentially life-saving drug could be potentially dangerous on the scale of, let's say, telling people to inject themselves with bleach. I'm old enough to remember two weeks ago when even joking about medical advice was tantamount to murder. No one as yet has died from Trump's promotion of hydroxychloroquine. Nor bleach, not that he even said that. For months, we've heard people with whiny voices squawking about how we must listen to the data. Oh, the data. I once ventured out as a young boy to seek the data. It was at the very, very top of the tallest tall mountain. When I finally reached the craggy peak, I looked back from on high, down on my fallen companions below, my very brothers. I turned, my end in sight, the light nearly blinded me, the great orb shone like seven suns. I had never looked upon all the perfect data at once before. To this day, I am blind, but it feels like it's getting better. I'm not the only one to have gazed upon the data, though. The data is everywhere these days. Facebook and Google have the best data, at least as far as our quaint little personal data is concerned. Amazon has great data, too, on everything. It even listens to you. These companies use this data to sell us things. Some of these things will be helpful. Some of them will be useless. We buy them because it feels right momentarily. Twitter and Instagram have data. Their data is filtered through their great algorithm and then presented to you in the form of exactly what you want to see, even though you don't know what you want to see. These companies make money off of data and use data to make crucial decisions. Know who else runs their companies by the data? The entire media. Newsrooms aren't having serious ethical conversations about whether or not to run these stories. The policy is shoot first, ask questions later. 
CNN isn't a news channel. It's an app. They're not informing the public or even doing the news. They're creating content for people who want that content because that's the content the data says those people want. The New York Times has re-envisioned itself as a data company now, too. They're selling demographic information for targeted ads. They are monetizing their own demos to sell micro-targeted ads based on consumer data. Are we to imagine that they're not treating the product they produce in the same way? Do we need to infantilize ourselves, pretending that we're being given hard news in an attempt to save face? We're telling these companies what we want, betraying our biases to them, and then they sell it right back to us. We watch it because it makes us feel good about the things we believe. We believe these things so strongly because, well, they're saying it too. The chicken in this chicken and egg is your set of biases. And what exactly is content posed as news? Is there something convincing to the idea that people who are quite clearly using their platform to enact a political agenda are a good source of information? Think of your most extreme friend on the left or right, even the most informed of the extreme ones. Can that person tell you why he or she might be wrong? If not, that person isn't informed. And you know that, which is why their arguments sound panicked and theoretical and unconvincing. They're not rooted. You can tell that the things they say prioritize their personal politics above their commitment to perspective and truth. The only thing that allows the corporate media to do this is your own prejudice for their brand. This would be like preferring to hail a dirty, smelly cab rather than summoning an Uber because you remembered liking cabs 25 years ago. The people who populate these newsrooms are on Twitter. You can see what they personally post. You can see who they follow and which bad jokes and bad takes they perpetuate. Their biases are not hidden. Think of the three people in media you get your information from. And follow them on Twitter. If you don't know which side they're on after three days, keep getting your news from them. If you can tell who they'd rather have win the election from their Twitter after three days because everything they post supports their political agenda, that person is not an objective reporter, period. That is fine for the New York Times' Maureen Dowd, a columnist. That is not fine. For the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, their lead White House correspondent. This is a game that can only last for so long. The corporate media is in a bridge period where the husk of their institutional reputation has all but separated from their body. Not enough people have noticed yet, but we're not long from the final stage. It's a matter of days or weeks, maybe months, but I doubt longer until CNN and MSNBC become content apps for college educated dummies and the New York Times and Washington Post become the choice of the more college educated faux literati. Fox News isn't news either, but that knowledge is already part of the central narrative that CNN, MSNBC 
And the New York Times and Washington Post in their political coverage are just partisan hacks who produce partisan hackery to be consumed by other partisan hacks desperate for institutional approval is not widely known and accepted. A social value has been created for the willingness to hew to the main story. But the main story, the central narrative these institutions are dependent on, maps onto the real world less and less. We have a class of highly educated people who are more inclined to think that being able to recite the entirety of the central narrative is a greater display of intelligence than to build a house. Somehow, being able to explain to like-minded people how Kamala Harris would be the perfect candidate matters more than being able to put a Ferrari back together. We can talk about how things accrue under capitalism, but once that's done, there's still no explanation for how a society gets to the point where being able to lie in a blog is looked upon more highly than the total mastery of an incredibly complex task. Have we lost sight of everything that matters? Viewing the coronavirus through a purely agenda-driven lens could very well be the downfall of the media. If there is not a spike in deaths upon reopen, and if Georgia, Florida, and Texas are any indication, there will not be, and I don't believe there will be, the media and Democrats in any public figure who spent the last two months saying that we might have to stay inside till next year or that we should pay other people to, will be exposed as the fearful person they are. It's a certain kind of brain that's able to convince itself that there's a world out there where no one dies, where you can opt out of participating in the continuation of society. Every life is touched by death. There is no other way. These people will have marked themselves consumed by fear when everything mattered the most. In more primitive days, anyone so afraid of interacting with the world around them would have starved to death. They still might before this is over due to their insistence on perpetuating their mania across social media, convincing other weak people, including political leaders, that we can all just hide out until the danger is over. The danger is never over. For many people, the next few weeks will be some of the most important in their lives. The bold and motivated will return to society as quickly and confidently as possible, and they will be rewarded. The timid and those constantly trying to make everyone around them fearful to pacify their own dread will destroy themselves and become embittered. This is worthy of your sympathy and your pity, but it is not worthy relative to any of the men and women who built this country and provided for us the safest world in the history of humanity. What happens in your world next depends on you. What happens next in the country is wide open, but a possibility arose upon hearing about how we may have blown the assessment of when the virus first reached our shores by potentially four and a half months. If we find out, and it's possible we will, that the story I've put forth explains the virus and we do not see a significant spike in deaths or a return by the early fall, We'll be left picking up the pieces of our lives, our families, and our society caused by a bad guess by epidemiologists and on the terrible leadership of our elected officials, too disconnected from the world around them, too consumed by being told by society or by authority that they could simply be given all the answers and a populace willing to listen to people like this and do what they're told. And if that happens, Trump will be reelected.
Those Americans who have not yet realized that the government is a failure because of us should begin realizing that it is. We demand nothing but a D or an R next to a random person's name before we assent to their pursuit of power. If pressed, we can give a half-hearted explanation about how at least they don't do some horrible thing that the cartoon version of the other side does. You don't want a country that empowers Trump? Me neither. But that's still on us. You shouldn't want a state that empowers Gavin Newsom or Eric Garcetti just because wanting that makes you feel like you're not responsible for racism. There is a possible world where we look back in a month or two and see that the constant fear mongering and catastrophizing by the media, our leaders, and even our friends was not only silly and unwarranted, but maliciously dangerous. These people were too comfortable staying home and letting the world sort itself out while they watched Netflix. And the excuse will always be, we were listening to the experts. We were following the data. If there's a world where that matters, it isn't this one. Ask yourself, what about hearing scary things from dishonest people on TV made you fear for your life? What caused that fear to be so great that you couldn't do anything but cower before it? Our greatest privilege in this modern era is that our ancestors were not like that. The media, in its haste to constantly paint Trump as devil, have painted themselves into a corner. If the virus passes without a major return and the numbers continue as they are, posing almost no threat to anyone under 65 and slight threat to any healthy person, they will either have to face that they have misled the entire country to ruin or they'll have to continue telling the same narrative about how we've been subject to unfathomable suffering at the hands of Donald Trump. To do that, they'll continue to emphasize meaningless numbers like cumulative cases to nourish the societal belief that vectors are omnipresent and we still have reason to be afraid. You should expect the media to find one truly harrowing tale about how the reopening destroyed a particular family almost definitely to be represented by a woman of color and they will make a media darling out of her. She will speak at the Democratic National Convention in support of Joe Biden as proof that Trump's carelessness has a human toll. Could I be wrong? I suppose. But it's worth saying now so that when it happens, it's understood in its proper context. The commercial exploitation of a heartbroken woman in service of naked partisan bickering. A certain segment of our population will find this gross, but shut their mouths anyhow, because there is no level to which they're afraid to stoop if it means getting Trump out of office. This will, of course, backfire spectacularly. The media's coverage of coronavirus mirrors their coverage of the impeachment, which mirrors their coverage of the Russian collusion debacle, which mirrors their coverage of the 2016 campaign. There are enough warped mirrors to build a funhouse. They believed genuinely unbelievable evidence of something because they can't act rationally in their formerly important jobs. This is a derangement and it's present among all these people. There are good reasons to dislike Trump and I dislike him for those reasons. That doesn't mean I have to pretend I think that's all that matters.
being unable to maintain some semblance of rationality and control because you're obsessed with the president isn't a result of his mental illness. It's a symptom of yours. There should be a list of media members who chided Florida and Georgia and Texas so that we know who thought it was appropriate to be so convinced of their own rightness that they made fun of these and other governors who performed far better when asked to handle a complex set of trade-offs than, say, Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo. The motivation was clearly partisan. That means they're the sort of people who are literally hoping more people die in Florida so that it makes Democrats look smarter, more prudent, more capably guided by the data. This gives them comfort at home in their Instagram sweatpants, rage tweeting to the world, wholly consumed by hatred for the president and prepared to do and say anything to totally debase themselves just to feel better about who they are vis-a-vis Trump. And let's be clear, that's what this is. They don't actually care what Trump says or does since they don't really know. It's a put on, a display. Trump outrage among these people is performative. There are plenty of things Trump does to be upset about, but those aren't good enough. A new outrage emerges every day, every time they need a hit, and Trump is a drug to them. The sense of moral righteousness they get when performing anger is what substitutes for a purpose in life. Overschooled, certainly not overeducated, bratty rich kids with nothing to do but play status games. They learn to write as well as a high school student studying for the verbal half of the SAT. They use that unremarkable talent to air petty grievances, proclaim their staggering intelligence advantage over the peons, and tweet about The Bachelor. All of this is for show. This is the danger of not having a personality. When everything is a status game, and it is to them, the truth or falsity of something is dependent on whether it increases or decreases their status. This is why they constantly lose to the person who cares more about the status game than anyone in public life. They believe they're increasing in status relative to their perceived betters in high society, people with more status and more money, but also those with actual talents like singers and athletes and actors and the, the bachelor. They don't have any particular interest in businessmen and women. Those jobs are of no interest because no one knows who those people are, hence no status. They could have created a company that employs thousands of people, made a billion dollars on a product that improves every American's life, could have provided a stable, secure life for their family. And none of this matters because no one knows who they are. All that matters is the constant contest for who can be the first to write the catchy tweet showing how bad the bad people are. The goal of these Americans seems to be that they want to be perceived in a way that might impress what they think a European is. What could be more self-hating than to be so embarrassed to be American that you pretend to be separate from and higher than so many other Americans? It's a transparent attempt to impress more haughty, cultured people, hopefully in France, who exist only in your imagination. I've met some Europeans. And I find that they're more interested in discussing matters of substance. But of course, these media people can't do that.
they can tell you about The Bachelor. I doubt that Europeans are either way, though I'm sure some are both. I can imagine Europeans too. Who are these people who wrote these articles, proclaiming their hatred for half the country, scaring a nation into setting itself on fire and twisting every story to find their agenda and reveal their ascendant status? What are any of them doing in their positions, able to perpetuate an obviously false narrative under the guise of being what the intelligentsia imagines is the gold standard of news? Amanda Mull of The Atlantic wrote an article with the headline, Georgia's Experiment in Human Sacrifice. The state is about to find out how many people need to lose their lives to shore up the economy. In her tweet posting the article at the time of its publication, she wrote, I wrote about the unspeakably cruel experiment that Georgia's state government is performing on its citizens and what it looks like to be a worker forced to choose. The utter contempt you must feel for a person that you don't know to be able to write that is incomprehensible to me. To have those words propped up by the Atlantic's reputation is a disgrace to the literary history of the magazine and its lofty place in our culture. Then again, the Atlantic has done itself no favors. In the last few years, the writers of the Atlantic have obsessed about collusion and impeachment, and they've been a major player in drumming up hysteria about coronavirus. This is what happens when you replace talented, fair-minded writers with status-seeking bloggers and your magazine bows to politically correct whining, choosing to unhire one of the most talented cultural critics in the country, worried that the Atlantic staff would be upset by having more than one opinion about abortion represented in the organization. As each horrifying prediction they made proved wrong. They changed the subject, always back to how they're exercising an abundance of caution and how their interest is in saving lives, unlike yours. There were articles about how the virus was worse on women, even though it kills far more men, and not much on how the economy would be destroyed. Did they even bother to consider another side? It doesn't seem so. Yet we still believe them because they're still telling us what we want to hear. Each time they do and we listen, we take one more step away from reality. The gap grows between what we force ourselves to believe and what we can see and know for ourselves. To say they're making themselves crazy would be to let them off easy. They're making everyone crazy. And herein lies the problem. If I am right about the virus and all the incoming information points in that direction, the media has put themselves in a precarious position. Their baseline position is that Trump is always wrong. If we end up looking back on these lockdowns as disastrous miscalculations, and it's becoming certain we will, Trump will not bear the burden of this crisis. While he was thoroughly unprepared, muddled each situation with senseless bluster and drama, and eventually went along with the lockdowns, even extending them himself, he has already been painted by the media as the avatar for the evil of wanting to open too early. The binary partisanship of the situation at this point leaves Trump to be remembered for saying liberate Michigan, while the Democrats and the media will be remembered for causing enough hysteria to have the country locked down.
for sacrificing any semblance of rationality to their quasi-religious scientism, for making heroes out of bad governors, and then for doing everything they could to prevent Americans from getting back to work. The Democrats in political positions will be remembered for the $1,200 pittance most Americans received as part of a $2.2 trillion relief package for financially incentivizing people not to return to their jobs and for trying to load up the relief bills with non sequitur agenda items instead of rushing help to the people they forced to stay home. The only Republicans they bothered highlighting during the crisis were Trump and the governors of states who are now looking like the smart ones. The Democrats and the media took sight of the greatest crisis in the country since the Cold War and gauged their response to it by whatever seemed like it might weaken Trump at that moment. These people have completely abandoned their jobs, and they've done so willingly with the support of their dizzy voters. The polls right now are not great for the incumbent, but we're still five and a half months from Election Day. If there is no spike in hospitalizations and deaths, and it's unlikely there will be, the economy will come roaring back. If that happens, Trump will be the one who can legitimately claim that he never wanted to lock anything down. He has said it. And even if he hadn't, he is the one who wanted to keep the country open. No one would claim otherwise. One of the Democrats' central arguments is that Trump took too long to lock down in the first place. Their unending quest to make Trump look like a fool has put them in the unenviable position of having to hope for death or stare down four more years of that fool as president. What is there to stop that? Joe Biden squaring off in debate against a president who might very well look like the most sensible person in the room at that point? This is the institutional equivalent of dying from autoerotic asphyxiation in a foreign hotel room. Is it time to ask what purpose corporate media even serves? They don't have armies of reporters around the world giving us the real story from the ground. And the ones they do barely make a dent in the national conversation, unless it's in conjunction with a natural disaster or the marriage of a foreign princess. Their obvious political agenda is in conflict with reality at least half the time. It's impossible to always be rooted in reality and also always paint a picture that supports the agenda. Some realities support one agenda over another. Some realities don't. That's not a problem for people who filter the world through their worldview. They're simply employing the tools at their disposal. It's a problem for an entity whose validity is premised on their objectivity. In fact, these two states of being are diametrically opposed, which is why the agenda is transparently dishonest to everyone who takes a moment to view the institution with a critical eye. The New York Times employs or has access to many wonderful reporters around the world, but in their political coverage, they employ glorified bloggers who don't write well and often don't understand what they're writing about. They access the same facts everyone else has access to, and they don't possess the critical understanding to relay information in an actionable way. They simply attempt to make the facts of the world comport to the agenda, and then they present these facts in a way that leaves the Times' lazy, elite readership feeling that it's adequately equipped to continue supporting its prior worldview.
This is self-assurance on sale. Not one single bit of the relevant discussion or discovery about coronavirus has been initiated in the pages of the newspaper of record in this entire period. They report cases in big headlines, report on how hydroxychloroquine is deadly, even though it clearly is not, and create retroactive continuity to provide cover for bad actors on their own side. By the time something even appears in the pages of the Times, the same issue has been poured over by people much closer to the situation, much more familiar with the subject matter, and more able to properly process the new information. In most settings, this is what people would call smarter. But then, of course, a study would have to be conducted to show the IQ of the media members relative to Trump supporters. But media isn't the only institution that will suffer the consequences. The exploitation of science as a tool for the perpetuation of a narrative rather than as a tool for discovering the inner workings of the real world must come to an end. Countless times we've been told what the science says. And the source for that science has been epidemiology, decidedly not a science. Epidemiology is, at best, a social science. Our greatest tech minds are still in the process of understanding human behavior and what incentivizes one behavior over another. Even if our technology could predict, in the aggregate, what humans do, they still haven't mastered the process to understand what a human will do. It would be silly to believe that epidemiologists have surpassed Facebook's algorithm and mastered the human side. It's preposterous to imagine that they did so in addition to understanding the behavior of a novel virus to the point where they were authoritative in advising a 10 plus trillion dollar systematic destruction of American power and prosperity. Science may someday be able to predict these behaviors. We will know it can when it actually does. Epidemiology has not done that successfully. Their models and the media's understanding of those models has made it impossible for the public to understand them. Models are by nature constantly at risk of being wrong. Staking the future of history's greatest society on the incessant whining of people pretending to rely on applied mathematics mixed with heinous social philosophy is a bet that no one involved with science should ever be willing to make. That people like Anthony Fauci and our cable news anchors had the hubris and temerity to do this is a permanent black mark on the whole endeavor. We have a presidential candidate looking to displace Donald Trump who wants to put Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her Green New Deal at the forefront of environmental policy on the basis of the same sort of models. How is it that all these various sciences, as they're presented to us, always support collective and technocratic objectives? The simple answer is they don't. Remember, the same people who are telling you what science says also claim that science says there are 57 genders. There is no part of science that says this. There is nothing that prevents us from moving past this point in our collective thinking. We must do so if our hope is to retain what makes our society great. The illusion of permanent stasis should be fully broken now. We live in a world of risk. 
Pretending we can escape risk does not diminish the presence of the risk. It only reveals our inability to deal with it. As we emerge from our coerced adherence to the rule of idiots, we'll be forced to make a choice that we should have made long ago without being forced to. The idea that we can all live a perfect life and protect everyone is antithetical to every bit of our planet's history. This disease is no different than a massive earthquake. Imagining we can prevent death is akin to imagining we can prevent earthquakes. Maybe one day we can. That day is not today. It is up to us to decide who to be in the context of our circumstances. We don't yet know the full picture of the coronavirus fallout, but we do know that nothing about this disease has the power to decimate our society, our way of life. The only way we sacrifice that is to promote solutions that take us further from the way of life we've been fortunate enough to be born into or partake in after being born somewhere else. Sweden's reaction to the crisis is based in full on the goal of continuing the Swedish way of life. America's reaction was to pretend that we had the option of getting only the good and none of the bad. This is the default mood of a spoiled child. We know now that there are millions of Americans making more money on government provided unemployment than they were at their jobs. These workers have no desire to return to those jobs. Bypassing the obvious conversation about incentivizing laziness, there's a deeper truth revealed here. Many Americans are so dissatisfied with their normal lives that they find an existence of constantly consuming Netflix shows as preferable to their normal routine. I feel sympathy for the people having those thoughts. But the lesson here isn't about government assistance or a permanent welfare state. I have been one of those people at various points in my life, exhausted, frustrated about never quite making it over the hill and ready to give up. Let's be clear, wanting to stay home indefinitely while being paid other people's money isn't some noble stand for the value of human life. It's the display of oneself as fundamentally unable to live life in the first place. Whether you're prepared or not, Normal life is starting again around you. It's as unavoidable as the disease is. Are you just going to stay home forever, pretending that someone will take care of you? Has our culture completely infantilized us? Has our survival instinct as human animals been reduced to hiding in our homes for the fear of somehow infecting strangers we'll never meet with a disease we don't have? The bold will return to their lives pursue success and happiness, and win through their own effort and determination that which the timid expect to receive as entitlements from a government they view like a father distributing their allowance. This is the closest any of us will come in our lives to having the deck genuinely reshuffled. If you think you deserve the things you want, you should be prepared to go get them. If you think your very existence means you deserve things you're not prepared to leave your bedroom to get, you're viewing society as a provider of that which you can't provide for yourself, rather than viewing yourself as a component of society that has the ability to help society and yourself at the same time. It is a shame that our politicians at every level, including quite clearly the president, have no ability to tell the American people what's expected of them. They merely tell us to behave, which means nothing 
in the context of capricious and contradictory orders about how we're expected to live. My fellow Americans, we have been through some of the most harrowing months in our country's existence. We came together and prepared for the storm. All of us united to protect the vulnerable members of society and saved lives in the process. But the storm we prepared for did not come in the way we expected, and we were fortunate it did not. The knowledge we've gained will strengthen us if and when we are faced with a similar crisis in the future. We hope that crisis does not reveal itself. But the storm has passed. It is time to rebuild in a way that leaves us better able to weather these storms in the future. God bless America. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily-ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be reasonable. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!